Um, we were talking about this um, bombshell Jesus dropped on the disciples that the temple was going to be destroyed. And they wanted to know when and what the sign would be. And Jesus told them some things that would happen and would not really be the sign. And then he said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it shouldn't be, then flee to the mountains. And uh, we had been talking about the section in 24 to 27 with the judgment imagery in that section. Uh, typical prophetic language to talk about the fall of a nation. The lights were going to go out for the nation. Their world was going to come to an end. Uh, the Lord was going to come in judgment against them, and he was going to gather his people up to himself. I, mean, I think that's more or less where we were. Um, do you have any questions or comments down through 1327? <coughs> Somebody want to read 28 to 31? Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its seeds, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right. He's dealing really with the when question. When was Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And he says it's like the fig tree. You know when it puts forth leaves, that's a sign summer's near. So when you see these things happening, and I suspect he means especially, verse 14, the desecration of the temple. When you see these things happening, then you'll recognize that he's near. In other words, the Lord is near to judge Jerusalem and the Jewish nation. And he defines the when more specifically in verse 30 by saying that this generation would not pass away until all these things take place. So this was going to happen within their generation, uh, within their lifetime, so to speak. And we know historically that the Romans destroyed the temple and Jerusalem about 40 years after this, in the year 70. And so I think that pretty well locks us into everything down through verse 30, at least, had to occur in their lifetime before that generation passed away. So he's answered what the sign is not, what the sign is, and what they needed to do, and then the when. <coughs> Comments and questions? judgment of God is shaped like the other? I mean, there's sort of a pattern of God's judgments. That, that if you look at God's judgment on any nation, there's a lot of parallels with his judgments on any other nation. And a lot of parallels with God's final judgment. And so it's not surprising that Jesus would transition from the judgment of the Jewish nation to a greater and broader judgment that was coming. 32 to 37. But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slave in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, I believe that Jesus transitions to this ultimate coming of his, the ultimate judgment. Because he really says different things here. 
He's been telling them how they would be able to know. He's been giving them a sign. He's been giving them a time frame. But now what does he say about that day or hour? <coughs> no one knows. <coughs> Who does the no one include? Jesus himself. Yeah. Not the angels. Not Jesus himself. Only the Father. So, you know, he doesn't have a way to give us a sign of that. He doesn't have a time frame to tell us about that. It's it's at a totally unknown time. And he uses that fact to emphasize what lesson? Be Be alert. Something that you know will happen, but you don't know when it will happen, you need to always be ready for. He takes he uses the illustration of, of a, a man who's away on a journey. And he's got different slaves that are doing different things, including the doorkeeper, who needs to stay on the alert. He doesn't know when his master is going to come back. He doesn't know whether he's coming, as he says in verse 35, in the evening, at midnight, uh, you know, in the early morning when the rooster crows or in the when daylight comes. Uh, so if, if he doesn't know what part of the night the master may return, he needs to be awake and alert and ready at all times. And his lesson for us is you don't know when Jesus will return. You need to be awake, alert, prepared for Jesus' return at all, at all times. You know, it really won't make any difference to you when Jesus comes back if you're always ready. You know, if, if uh, would you would you feel comfortable? I don't know, because many of you wouldn't think about these things, but would you feel comfortable not having homeowners insurance? You know, um, well, you you know, uh, you don't need it a lot of times. I mean, I've rarely used mine. Finally, did when we had the windstorm took my roof off enough of it that it needed replaced. Uh, I don't think that may be the first time in several years I'd used it. I could have gone without it for a long time. But you don't know when you're going to need it. You know, just as sure as I would have dropped that, I don't think I legally could anyway, but just as soon as I would have dropped that, that might be the very time the next windstorm would come along. You know, so something that you have no way of predicting then you always have to live in that state of readiness. Comments and thoughts? This part of the reason for the the transition is in like in verse 30 you have these things in verse 32 you have that day. Or am I putting too much emphasis on the these and the that? I don't think that's uh, I, I think that's relevant. I wouldn't stake my primary case on that. There may not be... I'm not sure that it's just extremely significant of these or of that. Uh, because we can sometimes can sometimes vary that without a distinction. But I think it fits very well with the distinction we're making. I, I, the thing that I would say is he just says different things about it. You know, he's been saying something where he could tell you the timing. Now he says, nobody knows. <laughs> it's a totally different thing. If it didn't matter how you lived, then Jesus probably wouldn't needed, wouldn't have needed to say, be on the alert. Is that fair? Definitely. Because I... Yeah. One of the folks at Avon recently uh, talked to me about a person that he works with and was given some, you know, literature saying, you know, it doesn't really matter how you live because you can't fall from grace if you're a Christian. Well, if that were true, then what would be the need to stay on the alert? Yeah, exactly. There, you know, a warning like that would be irrelevant if yeah. you couldn't fall anyway. They changed their mind. 
Not somebody else. Oh. We're adding. Just stay there. Well, we'll go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. But yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. That, that, you know, what would you need to watch for? If it was just going to happen, well, let it happen, you know. That's been kind of my response, is that it's just it's throughout the pages of the Bible the need to to be alert and to be ready and prepared and that it is not just a given. Really, any warning in the Bible either is just irrelevant and God warned uselessly or it needs to be taken seriously. Come on in. In the end of Mark 13. Good point. Other thoughts on this? Do you, do you have anything more to say about the fact that the, the Son doesn't know, but the Father does? It just seems very mysterious. Why does it seem mysterious? I know. That's part of the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are so one. Each okay. of them always knowing everything. Yeah. Both of them always knowing everything about everything. And yeah, just stop that sentence because it wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> well, I don't know the best approach to take in explaining that. Um, what the probably the easiest approach. I'm not sure if it's the right one, but probably the easiest one is just to say that Jesus, um, as a man, had limitations that Jesus would not have had without his humanness. And there would be no, a number of things you'd say about Jesus as a man that really are a disconnect from Jesus as only God. And so that perhaps limitations on the extent of his knowledge would be one of those things that are applicable to his incarnation as a man. That's probably the easiest thing to say. I'm not sure that that's the point. It might be. You know, the other option would be to think of this as being, even with the oneness of God, having a separation of role that enables the Father to have some things within his parameter, the Son, others, and that there are even some things that the Father is just going to determine when he chooses that he doesn't necessarily share with the Son. Now, it's really hard for me to understand the nature of the oneness and the threeness of God. As I, I just don't have an adequate model to explain that. I'm willing to accept almost anything that doesn't just sacrifice completely the oneness or the threeness. Um, I mean, there's a lot of ways of looking at that, and I don't know what the best way of looking at that is. But I'd be okay with the idea that, well, maybe there are some things the Father knows that he hadn't told the Son. Not that it makes, I think that Father and Son and the Holy Spirit equally share in the nature of God. That wouldn't necessarily, to me, mean they have to know exactly the same things about what they're going to do. But but probably the easier explanation is just to take this as a limitation imposed upon him because of his humanness. Somebody has, I'm not a theologian. I, you know, those, those kind of things are not things that I do well with understanding or whatever. I mean, some people are much better at reasoning those things out than I am. So somebody got a thought or a comment? Perhaps that he doesn't know at this point? And that, if it is because of his being a man, then perhaps, though he's still called the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2, still I assume in his exalted role he returned to something much closer to what he had before. He received the glory that he had before from John 17. So perhaps this, if it was in his humanness, perhaps when he went back to heaven he learned that or didn't know that again or whatever. Because I'm just thinking that, but... 
he he had to learn obedience as a son right? and and through all of that concept that so he in a sense he learned things and maybe not knowing this piece of information was part of learning obedience and trust even more so that may be taking it too far I'm not real sure but it may be it may well be I mean it, it definitely there are things about Jesus as a man that are not true of God in heaven like he was tempted he got tired you know he got hungry and you know needed to eat and you know and so forth and so on and he was he was limited in many ways as a man that he was not limited when he was only God and I just think you know all of that is a mystery how could he be man and God at the same time I my approach to those things is we need to believe everything the Bible says we don't necessarily have to be able to understand exactly how, how all that fits together. And we have to be very cautious when we're dealing with things like this. Because if we don't look at the whole picture, we end up with a misconception. I don't think it was this study. Somewhere recently I was talking about the fact. I can prove to you from the Bible that Jesus on the earth was not God. And I can prove to you that he was not man that's easy you know can I mean can God be tempted Jesus was tempted so he's not God you know can man forgive sins Jesus forgave sins therefore he's not man you know and you can do that with a ton of things like that and you can you can prove he wasn't God he wasn't man <laughs> you know well, but that doesn't prove that Jesus was a special category he was both God and man but in ways in which he sh had some characteristics of God that a man would not normally have, and some kind of characteristics of man that God would not normally have. And you just, you know, any of the syllogisms and deductions and all that don't fit when you're dealing with something that breaks all categories and just doesn't fit anything we've seen before. But what people often do that ends up in misconceptions is they only look at one side of the question in the Bible, and they think they've got their proof. Well, you never are right until you're willing to accept and believe everything the Bible says about something, even if it doesn't seem to fit very well. Well, Jesus doesn't fit very well in anything we've ever seen before. He's totally different. Whatever all that was worth. I just said, I don't know anything about all that. Do you have other questions? It took me a while to say that. Well, how about chapter 14? Uh, chapter 14 is uh, more concrete. We are coming now to uh, some very important uh, moments in Jesus' life. And uh, you know how Mark is often written. We have many examples of a story framed by a story. We have that in this next section. So, chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and unleavened bread was two days off, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For the poor you always have with you, and whatever you wish, you can do them with But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whether wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money when he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. All right. So, 
we have this framework, verse 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, surrounding this story in 3 through 9. Now in 1 and 2, the Passover was just two days away. And what are the Jewish leaders wanting? To kill him. What's their problem? Well, so why? Well, he was popular, or at least well known. Popular, they think still. And but so, what? What would what would the Passover affect that? A lot of people, including a lot of people from Galilee, and Jesus is particularly well-known and popular in Galilee, and so they just have visions of coming out here with their, you know, uh, whatever weapons they had, swords and spears and so forth, and the people just rioting to defend Jesus. I mean, there were, you know, throngs, thousands and thousands and thousands of people and, and so they feel like they're just going to have to delay until the crowd for the Passover leaves. That's what they've decided to do. They are desperate to do him in. But they just realize from a practicality standpoint, it's not going to work when there's so many of his enthusiastic followers here in the city. That's kind of the situation and the dilemma with those leaders. And we're kind of meditating on that, and Mark does a flashback. Now, this anointing um, incident is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. There is an anointing event also recorded in Luke. Not the same one. That's a debated issue by some people. But I think clearly not the same one. Luke 7's anointing was a different one than the one in Matthew, Mark, and John. Now if you put Matthew, Mark, and John together, you find several things out about this, including that this was probably long about Saturday before the triumphal entry on Sunday. It's about when it was. Uh, So this is going back a few days to pick up this event. Uh, You also learn who the woman was who anoints Jesus. You, do you know who she was? Martha. Not Martha. Mary. Mary of Mary. Mary and Martha. Yeah. And uh, you wonder why Mark does this flashback to this. <coughs> and we'll think about that when we come to the end of this section. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer, but I have some ideas. Uh, but Jesus has been in Bethany here at the home of Simon the leper. And he's there at the table, you know, reclining at the table. Remember, that's what they do at a table. They didn't sit. You remember, uh, I only saw the Passion of the Christ once so far. But there's that little weird incident where Jesus makes a table. And there's some kind of comment made about that. That it's kind of supposed to be funny. You know, they didn't have it. They, she makes, he makes a chair. Yeah. They didn't really use chairs yet, you know. And I don't know, what was the comment made? Does anybody remember well, but it was there was some kind of a clever remark made about that, uh, yeah, and uh, because they, they didn't they didn't do that. The, the idea of chairs and a table is kind of a you know modern modern world sort of a thing. They used a, a very low table with like um, I don't know what you'd say uh, low couches that you'd lay on, and you know you so so you'd be stretched out with your feet behind you, and your you know your head propped up on your on one of your uh, hands, and you'd, you'd eat like this. So you'd be kind of laying, sprawled out, sort of, to eat. That sounds really weird to me. You know, I mean, I kind of like the idea of sitting down, and it kind of goes down better, you know. But, uh, gravity helps, but uh, but I guess if that's what you grew up with, and that's what everybody did, then it'd be normal. And so Jesus is, is reclining. And, uh, and, and there's this woman that comes in. That's Mary. Well, what does she have? Alabaster bottle, very costly. Yes. Yeah, which apparently was just really expensive stuff. In fact, they estimated in verse 5 that it could have brought maybe 300 denarii on the open market. 
And in Matthew 20, a denarius was one day's wages. Can you imagine perfume worth 300 days' wages? They tell me, I, I really don't know how to make anything about things like this, but apparently there are really expensive perfumes in the world that would cost just like megabucks. Yeah. But no more. Yeah. Like thousands and thousands of dollars. Thousand dollars an ounce kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Can you imagine? Any of you ever used any perfumes like that? I mean, I, I would assume if it's thousand dollar an ounce perfume, it's probably concentrated and doesn't take a whole lot to to satisfy. I don't know. You'd hope. Yeah, no, he loves you. Well, I mean, you know. You, you'd smell well with, uh, without having to use a whole lot. Uh, so, this is, this is just extremely expensive perfume. She's got a whole vial of this stuff that, that's worth, you know, maybe a year's, a year's salary. I mean, you know, so we're talking about, I mean, maybe, if it were for us, I mean, I don't know, what are you making a year? You know, $30,000 or something like that? Can you imagine $30,000 worth of perfume? You know, that would be a lot. And what does she do with this stuff? She uses it. Breaks it and pours it over his head. Yes. You might say Jesus was not so much anointed as drenched <laughs> in this perfume. I mean, and, and I assume that that was her intention. I mean, you wouldn't crack the vessel if you intended to save any of it. She is just doing something you would never do. You would never be that extravagant. You would never pour out. I mean, I don't care how expensive the perfume. I, I suppose in a few days the the smell is gone. You know, it's not gonna it's not gonna perfume him for the rest of the year. Um, so so I mean, she's just she's just doing this sort of uh, you know unbelievably extravagant thing. And and what are the what are the disciples really thinking about this? At least some of them. Waste. Yeah, what a waste! Yeah, can you can you imagine feeling that way? I mean, you know, I kind of think that about buying perfume like that. You know, the uh, odor it does fine. Uh, <laughs> but but you know, wow! They're just thinking we could have done so much with that money. Now we know from John who was a ringleader in saying that? Who was a ringleader in saying that? Judas. Judas. And he had a particular interest in selling the perfume and giving the money to the poor. What was his special interest in that? He was the poor. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then pouring it out in his <laughs> Yes, he, uh, he, he took his cut before the poor got any. He was the treasurer, actually, of the money bag of the disciples, and he was actually helping himself to some of them. Uh, apparently, he'd covered that up, and nobody but him and Jesus knew that. But, uh, but he was. And uh, so, it really made him mad. He was just thinking about, you know, all that he could have, what his cut might have been off of that. But what does Jesus say about this act? done a good work for him. Yeah. This has been a good deed she's done to him. Jesus defends her. You know, I think so many people would look at this and say, you know, that is, she's fanatical. That's just too, I mean, come on, what what was she thinking? I mean, it's impractical. It's it's going overboard. And, and I think the world would generally say that. But you know something? The world never has a, any problem with too much wealth, or too much power, or too much sex, or whatever <laughs> else. But when it comes to too much religion, and too much dedication to the Lord, now there's something wrong with that. You know that's that's really that's not that's not balanced. That's not wise. That's this is too that's too extreme. You know why? Jesus said it's a good deed. He said you can tell you can do good for the poor whenever you want to. They're always around, but you do not always have me with you. And Jesus interprets this 
as what really amounted to anointing his body for the burial. He's going to die in a week. And, and so he sees this as kind of, as kind of a, a preparation for his burial. Not that that's what she was thinking necessarily. But, but that's what it amounted to. And, uh, you know, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. There are some, some just amazing things in the Bible. That is being fulfilled by us right now. We're speaking about what Mary did 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. So we're actually fulfilling that at the moment. Um, comments and thoughts on, on this incident with the perfume. Well, I just was thinking, like, so you said that um, Judas would take money for himself. Maybe the perfume would have been worth maybe even more if he didn't want to say, like, the full value so he could pocket some for himself. Could be. You know, like, I mean, because it, if it was that expensive and stuff, maybe he even wanted to lower the price down so he could take some. Just yeah, like yeah. yeah I, I suspect, of course, it's already been used, so he's not going to be able to do that. But I suspect <laughs> if he had sold it, uh, he would have probably... Uh, you know, mentioned a lower price than what it really had brought, or something like that. There's lots of ways of embezzling money if you if that's what you want to do. You know, unfortunately. Do you know anything about the vial itself? What what it looked like or was like? Do you think they're talking about her in front of her, or was she there? I'm assuming so. I'm assuming they're scolding her right there, and Jesus steps in and defends her. It's just a shame for her, when she's doing this, that they're bawling her out over this. You know, she was she was really trying to, to, to do something good for Jesus. I mean, have you thought much about her psychology? Well, why would she have done this? I wonder the same thing, which makes me wonder, was this somewhat of a common thing to have done or was it really out there on the on the edge it'd be on the edge for us right, exactly uh, did, they, did they anoint them with a perfume because he said for burial did they do that yeah. yeah absolutely they 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 would put some spices and perfumes and things around the body they didn't really do an embalming process uh, so they would put things to make the body smell better and then kind of mummify it with wrappings. I think that was the norm. So yeah, they would use not all this expensive perfume, but something. Mm, okay. But she wouldn't have known that he was. I don't think she was doing it for that. I think Jesus interprets it as being that. Well, the, I mean, there's. You can the anointed. You can anoint your, have your head anointed with oil, like in you know, Psalm 23 and, and other things. And nard was, according to this note, a costly aromatic anointing oil extracted from an East Indian plant. So, I mean, she was anointing his head with oil. Yes. As a sign of favor, I guess? Well, sort of. Yeah, but, but yeah, definitely you put perfume on you. So, I mean, you know, it's a nice gesture if somebody offers you costly perfume. It's just kind of unusual to break the whole jar and pour it on him. What? Did Jesus ever say to his followers, you know, anoint me with perfume? I don't recall him ever, uh, you know, commanding that. So what was she thinking? Has this, has this brought up, like, um, like theories and controversy, like, as in, like, the Da Vinci Code, whereas, like, people saying that Jesus was her, like, her lover or something, like, different theories that people have brought up? Yes, though that's based upon a confusion yeah. with Luke 7. Oh, yeah. Because they, they usually say Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene was Jesus' lover. Okay. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Oh. Luke 7, many of them think it was Mary Magdalene, that sinful woman in Luke 7, that also anointed him and wiped his feet with her hair and all that. However, the text doesn't even say that was Mary Magdalene. It mentions Mary Magdalene in the next chapter. It may have been Mary Magdalene. It may not have been Mary Magdalene. So, man, it's amazing what people can stretch out of nothing. But, 
Well, who said the value of this perfume? Well, it, here it just says some were indignantly remarking about it. Now, in John, it looks like Judas took the lead in that. Um, in John 12, 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? So evidently Judas was a ringleader in saying this. Well, I was just wondering if that person wanted to say, hey, it was so expensive. Yes. Kind of showing off that it was really expensive and maybe it wasn't. Well, I don't know. I, but maybe it was. I mean, it, it certainly, you know, I think the idea of the text of all, he said it was very costly perfume, so that was their estimation. Does that an, an anointment with oil indicate um, being a chosen one of some kind? Sometimes it does, yeah. And when Samuel anointed David, and you know, there are other instances, but the one that always comes to my mind is Psalm 30, uh, 23, you've anointed my head with oil, my cup around the <coughs> and I don't know exactly what it means. To me, it just meant that Mary loved him so much that she was willing to give what probably was her most valuable possession to him. I think that's the point. Don't we do things like that in some situations? You ever known a guy who'd buy a very, very expensive uh, piece of jewelry and give it to some girl? You know? <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, things like that happen. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. I mean, sometimes that can be a uh, decent chunk of change. Why? A lot of times, everybody else is going, why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what did it mean to the guy who did that? She's important to him. Absolutely. Absolutely. He loves her. Nothing's too good for her. You know, sometimes he may even do something rather unreasonable based upon even his financial con condition because he just really loves her so much he wants to give her the best that he can possibly get her in terms of diamonds. And, you know, we may or may not have chosen to do that, but I think we understand that idea. You know, we understand that love does extravagant, unreasonable things if you're just looking from a calculating standpoint. And I think that's what Mary is doing here. She loves Jesus. She's not thinking, oh man, that's that's 300 denarii worth. Maybe I could, what if I just take the top off and pour a third of it? Then I, you know, no, she's not thinking that. She loves him. She wants to do everything she can for him. I think we don't understand this sometimes because we don't love Jesus. We have tried to figure out what's the minimum possible requirement we can get by with. And he'll still not send us to hell. And that is not loving Jesus. I think she's a tremendous example of what you do. If you love somebody, you don't measure the expense. You don't, you, you don't worry about even decorum. You, you rush in to do all you can because you really love him. And I think that's what Jesus saw in her. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, have you ever had a, uh, a kid that maybe, uh, you know, to do something nice for you, maybe, maybe actually, you know, did something rather foolish, but they meant it very sincerely, and they really, they, they, they really put their heart into it. Hopefully you've got enough sensitivity to realize that the love they expressed is worth a whole lot more than whatever they messed up to express them. And uh, for Jesus, I think he sees her love. He sees her heart. He sees she's done a good deed for me. You know, she's, she's really done something above and beyond what, what would ever be expected. You know, if, you, if the question we ask is, well, do I have to do this to be able to go to heaven? Then we don't love Jesus. If that's how we're looking at it. She wasn't looking. She, I don't assume that Mary had ever asked the question, well, do you suppose Jesus will condemn me if I don't pour this whole thing out on his head? That wasn't the point at all. 
She wanted to because she loved it. So I think it's a great story to show just that that great outpouring of love that she, she displayed. And in the former part of verse 8, uh, he says she has done what she could. So, I mean, that might just be the best thing that she could have done for him. So, yeah. As a show of love. Yeah. Absolutely. Jesus accepted that. He was, he was, he was happy <coughs> to be the recipient of this. How did she break it without spilling it all over? I might have given a headache. I, I don't know exactly. Anybody know what? How do you how do you break alabaster? I think alabaster is a rock. I, I think mm-hmm. I've seen a replica, and it's just a very hard, like a carved out, like a thing of marble almost. It's kind of. So you you probably have a you need a stone to break it with. Okay. <laughs> I thought like an alabaster alabaster vase or something. Was actually fairly fragile, but like fine china, isn't it? That's what I was thinking. That it, I mean, whenever it's made in something like this, that it would be, it'd be crafted to be thin. Uh, but I'm not sure. The last house was pretty thick, but yeah. Alba, my note says alabaster is a translucent stone still used to make ornamented jewel, jewelry boxes and items of value. I'm thinking you get a stone. Yeah, so maybe who knows? You get maybe you get the stone thin enough. It's translucent. But I'm assuming somehow or other she broke it, whatever, however she had to do it, kind of over his head to where when it started pouring out, it was pouring out over him. Mark? Uh, where does it, what account does it say that it was Mary that did this? John 12. John 12. Okay. Of course, he's reclining too, so. Yeah. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, if he was standing up, she'd have to get a stool or a ladder, probably. Uh, but no, yeah, so his head is low, so she can easily do that. Yeah, good. that's a good point, Joe. I don't know if it means that she broke the actual vial, or she broke the seal on the vial, making it unable to be... Um, well, my translation says she broke the vial. Okay. Other people did things unusual towards Jesus. You know, we don't think a lot. I mean, just bowing down to him, laying their coat on the road for him, you know, that would seem rather unusual. But that's all they had, and that's because of the way they felt towards him. They did what they could do at the time. Giving money to him uh, and the disciples, uh, supporting him. And, yeah, a variety of things. I mean... I, I think if we understand the idea of love, then this is reasonable. And that we've got to come to be more like her in the sense that we want to serve. We're not being forced to serve. I'm not trying to make any particular point here about this. It's just that I find it kind of interesting, some of the roles that the women around him have played in his life. And both this and the other anointing being women, it doesn't jive with the other anointings in the Bible to me. I just, I just find it interesting. There's a lot of emphasis on women, especially in the Gospels. A lot in Luke. But, but man, they were there sometimes when the men weren't. I mean, at the cross, at the tomb, you know, and and in some of these key roles. Uh, I think it's definitely an accurate analysis. I don't know exactly what to make of that either. Well, the whole plan wasn't real logical, so that explains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she has done what she could. <laughs> the guys were back there calculating trying to figure out where Jesus went, and the women just went and looked in the tent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, thinking about on the way, who's going to roll yeah, over the yeah. stone? <laughs> there you go. And you thought about that, and they're on their way. <laughs> but they were the first witnesses of the empty. <laughs> Just so. a demonstration of the difference. I think she loved him so much because she recognized who he was. Kind of like Zacchaeus, willing to do what he did because he recognized who this person was. And I think we don't I don't love 
God and Jesus like I should sometimes because I just don't fully appreciate who they are. Amen. Yeah, it, yeah. We've got to um, we've got to really develop a closer relationship and you know, just going through some sort of ritual doesn't leave us loving the Lord. Are you going to go back to why he jumps back? Because I'm ever so curious. Yes, I am, but only after I've done 10 and 11. <laughs> 10 and 11, Judas, who was one of the 12, now we've come back to real time from verses 1 and 2. He goes off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. They began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Now, I want to talk a while about this, and then we'll come to the connections. Um, I, I think that's not well understood sometimes. Um, first of all, they wanted to do Jesus in. They wanted to arrest him, but they had thought they couldn't because of the Passover. Then Judas apparently takes the initiative to go and make the offer to betray him. But, but my question is, what did Judas do? What, what value did Judas have to these Jewish leaders? He was an inside man. Hmm. Yes, he was. So what was he able to do that was valuable to them? point out where, where he was going to be yeah, in alone. alone. Yes. In Acts chapter 1, this is a helpful <laughs> text to me in understanding <laughs> Judas's function that I didn't understand for a long time. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Judas' function was the function of a guide to show them where Jesus was just with the twelve when he wasn't surrounded by the multitude at night. He was in Jerusalem every day and everybody knew where he was. They couldn't arrest him then. And, and they didn't know where he was going at night. But they get one of the insiders, one of the twelve who's been spending the nights with him and he says, you know, I'll, I'll show you, I'll guide you to where he's at when there's not a crowd around at night, if you'll pay me. I think that's what Judas was able to do, that they needed, in order to arrest him now. They, if they've got him already arrested before, and while everybody else is asleep, then they'll be able to work the crowd. They don't have that traumatic, dramatic moment of the arrest they have to deal with the crowd on. Does that make sense? Alright, so explain to me what Judas is thinking. I think that's the case. People have come up with all kinds of explanations for what Judas did. But the text seemed to indicate that um, he did it for money. And it wasn't enough money, though. It wasn't that much, was it? Well, it was something. <laughs> you know, 30, was, well, I don't know how much it was worth, but I mean, we're not talking about 50 cents or something. We're talking about, what, 30 pieces of silver? Wasn't that what it was? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 30 silver pieces would have... Isn't that the price of a slice? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Sorry, what price the price of a slice. I mean, not a ton, but, you know, enough to make a difference. Maybe it was just a poor fellow. He just wanted the money. Well, I think he wanted the money. I mean, the fact that he was stealing from the treasury, what does that tell you about him? That doesn't really tell you his financial condition, but it tells you his, his, his mentality. You know, it says, and this is John 12, uh, 6. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. You know, he had a habit of taking some of it for himself. He's greedy. You know? And here's a chance to make some money. So he does. 
I don't think there's anything deeper than that in this. And some people try to figure out, well, was he upset about something Jesus had done, said, or, you know, all kinds of things like that. But I don't see any reason to ignore the plain meaning of the text. He wanted the money for it. And people have done things for lesser, lesser amounts, <laughs> but they should. Um, we'll come back to thinking maybe a little bit more about his mentality, but let's go to the question of, okay, so why this story within a story? Why do they start out telling about the priests being frustrated in their desire to arrest Jesus because of the festival, then the flashback to that incident with the perfume, and then back to real time, Judas solves their problem. He offers to betray him to them for money. What's the connection between the anointing story and the Judas selling Jesus story? Maybe both go back to Judas's greed. Okay. Here's a possibility. I'm not so sure in Mark, but in John, where you have a, a similar thing, um, maybe part of the thing was Judas was upset that he lost out on his chance to make anything off of selling the perfume, and so he's gonna he's gonna get that back. By selling Jesus. <laughs> that this makes a sort of compensation. You know, he, oh man, so frustrating. Could have had all this money, so he'll sell Jesus. I think in Mark, though, the point may be more just a contrast point. Here's Mary sacrificing something very expensive to honor Jesus. Here's Judas sacrificing Jesus for money. She's spending money on Jesus. He's trying to profit by Jesus. I think it just shows you that contrast. Putting these two stories back to back. Really, I think, it just shows you how outrageous what Judas did was. You know, you look at him up against Mary. It looks even worse. She was willing to, to spend, you know, thousands of dollars to honor Jesus. Judas is willing to, you know, get something lesser to selling. Comments and thoughts on all this. I've got to bring up John 12 because there's a lot of differences between John 12 and Matthew 26 and Mark 13 or Mark 14. Um, not a lot, but there's a couple differences in the stories. Um, Obviously, both are taking place in Bethany, but one says, John 12 says, that she anointed his feet with the oil. Uh-huh. Also, to me, in the first couple verses of John 12, it makes it seem like they're almost in the house of Lazarus as well. Yeah, that's where they were. Well, in Mark, it says, in the house of Simeon the leper. Or Simon the leper. Yeah, that's where they were. Same house. Same house. Okay. Well, the one is with the anointing the feet. Well, I suspect she anoints it both. Okay. You know, that, that, that would be my guess. I mean, it certainly wouldn't have to be a one or the other thing. Maybe she poured some out on his feet and then broke the vial and poured the rest out over his head. Mm-hmm. You have those things a lot when you compare the Gospels. And every once in a while they'll buff a little you a little bit. Um, but it, it's so intriguing because it's exactly what you'd expect if you had independent witnesses describing the scene. They will not be word for word the same. They can be totally truthful, all of them, but they look at it from different perspectives and describe different aspects. You know, the fact that she anointed his feet certainly doesn't prove she didn't anoint his head, but one of them noticed the anointing of the feet, and that's what impressed them, and that you know, maybe maybe even the very idea of anointing his feet seems kind of, uh, you know, even feeling like his feet were worthy of anointing. Whereas the main part of the oil went on, or perfume went on his head, and so another gospel writer talks about that. That's, a, that's so true to life. If you have independent witnesses, if there was collusion, 
if they'd gotten together to concoct the story, they'd have made sure they smoothed out and ironed out all those kind of differences. They didn't have that. So there's no differences in the gospel records that prove any contradiction, but sometimes it's like, whoa, I wouldn't have even thought about that happening from the other gospel account. It even fits in in verse 8 in Mark 14. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. So if you anoint the head and the feet, it's like you've you've anointed from top to bottom, even if you haven't actually poured, you know, oil on the knee and the elbow and whatever. Because normally, wouldn't they? Wouldn't she, he say, "She has anointed my head." If yeah. That's all. The, yeah. If that's all she had anointed. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Very good point. This was a time period when the Jews, remember the timing, were buying sacrificial lambs. Now the religious, religious leaders buy one. Isn't that interesting? Jesus. When you were talking about thinking that 30 pieces of silver wasn't that much to betray him for, it seems like oftentimes, even today, you see somebody that has quite a bit of money. And you sometimes scratch your head because they're trying to get another dime or, you know, they try to shortchange something because when you're greedy, you never can get enough. You know, so it's common even among people today that, you know, maybe Judas didn't have that much money, but if you're, if you're the mentality to be greedy, you're going to try to cut corners and get a dime wherever you can get it. So 30 pieces of silver, hey, there's another source of some money for me. I think that's right. I mean, I think greedy people... You're greedy for anything you can. I mean, what is it, nameless too? They pan over the dust of the, uh, the on the head of the poor. The of the, yeah. yeah, and they begrudge the very ground the poor man's standing on. They're so greedy. I mean, greedy people. You know, I mean, they'll cheat people out of a dime, out of a dollar, out of a million. You know, whatever. Uh, I mean, and people who steal things, and they'll steal little things, they'll steal big things, they'll steal whatever. And uh, I don't know. I mean. I just think, isn't this a, a terrible thing to think Judas could have spent so much time with Jesus. Think about all the miracles he saw. Think of all the times he saw and heard Jesus teach. The compassion he showed. I mean, you know, he's been one of the inner circle. He goes off and sells him. Do you think the people would have went up to him first? <coughs> it doesn't look to me like it. It looks to me like he went on his own and volunteered. But what, they would not want to talk to him since they hate Jesus? And since he's one of them? Well, maybe, but... Uh, I mean, the text says in 10... Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this. I mean, I can imagine if they, he came up and said, "Listen, guys, I can, uh, I can, I can give you something neat. I, I can lead you to where Jesus spends the night, when you could arrest him, you know, without anybody being around." I mean, they wanted to get Jesus. This was awesome. From their standpoint, this was the break they were looking for. You know, somebody willing to rat on Jesus. I mean, people, pretty much people will do that a lot. I mean. You know, I mean, a government's always looking for, for somebody from the enemy nation who's willing to, you know, be a traitor and give them secrets and, you know, things like that. So I can imagine they just thought this was a bonanza. Yes. I found a note about the 30 pieces of silver that says, The coin is unidentified. If it was a denarius, this sum represented approximately five weeks' wages. It could have amounted to much more. So it could have been a little bit, or it could have been a whole lot. So five weeks' wages for us would be, uh, oh, $3,000, $4,000, maybe, I don't know, uh, if it was that. 
I mean, that's, that's a decent amount. You know, I mean, I don't think we're talking about not nearly as much as maybe the 30000 you know, or 40000 that that she spent on the perfume, but still, it's a decent amount. I doubt that, I mean, my guess is the chief priests, from their perspective, weren't stingy about this. They were willing to put forth what they probably considered to be a decent amount of money to get this information. And really, it's an easy job. All he has to do, he just has to take them right to where he knew Jesus would spend the night. And his job's over. He gets the money. That's pretty easy money. If that's what you're thinking about. How many people have sold Jesus out of money? You know, how many people have just taken things that don't belong to them, have cheated, have swindled, have, you know, exploited, they've done whatever. <coughs> and, and, I mean, what people sell their soul for? You know, well, I mean, for how much money will people lie on their income taxes? For, for I mean, it's amazing. I mean, sometimes people will, will, will sell out for practically nothing. You know, stealing something that doesn't even mean that much. Money and the love of it just has such a hold on us. Other thoughts? Uh, I, I mean, that, that to me is the big point of these two stories together. Just, you know, are you going to be one who goes to extremes for Jesus at, at the cost of money? That that's irrelevant to you. Um, for attaining Christ, or the other way, that if you want money, you'll just neglect whoever it is, including Christ, for it. I mean, you, you know, in the end, we decide to either be Mary or Judas, and to you know make, make one decision together. Yeah, they're a tremendous contrast. One sacrifices so much for Jesus; the other one tries to exploit Jesus, and gain something for himself. Maybe sometimes, I mean, <coughs> not all. Into with money, I mean, you can insert your obsession here. I mean, anything that you're focused on above that you're willing to sell Jesus for um, is still the same thing. You know, we look so much like, oh, Jesus sold him for this much money. Well, how, how, how many times a day do we sell, sell, sell Jesus for with a lust of the flesh or whatever we want just, just to sell him? I mean, it's so bad for money, it's so bad for everything else. It's not just money we sell him for. Right. Other comments and thoughts? Good discussion. Good, good comments. You think Judas actually thought that they would convict Jesus or be able to? That's a good question. I'm not sure about that. I mean, obviously, what Judas ends up doing is kind of odd. <laughs> you know, after after what happens, happens just like he had arranged for it to happen. Then he felt remorse. He said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, and he threw the pieces of silver back. So he, he, he suddenly had a change of heart. I don't know. I mean, was Judas... I mean, I don't know about this. Uh, but, I mean, some people have speculated Judas thought, ah, Jesus will get out of it somehow. So he'll get the money, and it really won't hurt Jesus. I mean, Jesus obviously had, you know, various abilities to get out of things. And once he realized they're really going to go through with crucifying him, then it made him feel guilty. I, that's a possibility. On the other hand, I mean, I think it may just be when the reality hit him. I mean, sometimes after we do the wrong thing, after we get the money, and it's like, what have I just done? I mean, I think that's pretty... I mean, how many times have you done something wrong? And as soon as you did it, you just got this sinking feeling in your stomach. And you just feel like, oh my, I can't believe I just did that. And even something you premeditatively did, like this, even something that you planned, sometimes once it's over, <coughs> then... Then the, it just seems more real. You've already done it. You get caught up in the excitement of doing it. 
thrill of doing it, maybe. And then you've done it, and you realize, oh, I did something terribly wrong. I don't know. It's, the, it's the deceptiveness of sin that it, it, its appeal is so strong, and you're so convinced that it's going to satisfy, and then it's nothing but emptiness. And it doesn't take long to realize that. Well, now, some some go quite a, a long time in their lives before they finally come to conclude they're not going to find what they're looking for in that, but it is empty. But it's so deceptive that it... And that's all I think Judas was thinking about. He couldn't think... He wasn't thinking about, well, how might this hurt Jesus, or he'll get out of it. He could have, but I think more he was so focused on the money and how that was going to make him feel so good that if he could just do that... That's certainly the way we do. You know, it's we get crazed over the sin we want to commit. And we really block everything else out. You know, it's all for trying to you know, accomplish whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. And it's only after we wake up and realize what we've done. But then we realize, oh, that was bad. And it didn't satisfy me. We rationalize, we minimize the consequences justify, maybe he justified, well, like we've said, I could have had some of that money, now I can't, so. Yeah, it's only right. Yeah. You know, he deserved, you know, his cut. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing what, what people could think. And what we think. I mean, the thing about some of these things is, if we're really honest with ourselves, you know, we've done things like this. We've reasoned in those wrong ways and acted in, in ways that were not that far away from Judas. Other comments? Well, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to leave a little bit earlier tonight because there's a meeting for some of the trips.